And so after I graduated, I went to the United States and, and studied my, you know, studied physics, in fact. Really? Oh. Right. Sure. Nuclear physics was my most interest. Advanced physics, modern physics, quantum physics, that was my thing until it you was... You realized you couldn't build a, build a nuclear bomb just by doing that. You needed a... Yes, people say that, but, you know, for me, I, I you know, my inspiration were Pakistani Nobel Prize winners, right? Like. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, like Abdul Salam, yeah. um, theoretical physics was my interest, mm. but also Abdul Qadir Khan, who did build a nuclear yeah. reactor. You see, you could say that building a nuclear bomb is rather easy. Building a nuclear reactor is much harder. The Prophet used to visit Ayman uh, frequently, so after he passed away, the next most senior members, Abu Bakr and Umar, tried to do all the things that he used to do to ensure the community goes on, so they also went to visit her. And when they went to visit her, she started crying. And, 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 and to make her feel better, they said, well, don't you know? He's in Jannah. He's with God. He's happy. And she said, well, that's not why I'm crying. I'm crying about us. I'm crying because the door of revelation has closed, right, from heaven to never open again. And that's really a moment which, where the ummah, uh, ummah's sense of politics is born. Right? So this is theoretically a very important moment because this means that the ummah is now going to continue without divine, direct divine guidance. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh Uwayman. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Jazakumullah khairan for joining us. Um, it's actually been on my list of things to do to meet you for a long time. Uh, I think we had some emails like years ago and then I think COVID happened and this and that. Um, so when I found out you're in town, I thought, you know, we really need to uh, meet. And alhamdulillah, you had a meeting with Sheikh Haytham uh, a few hours ago. Uh, how did that go? Very good, alhamdulillah. Honored to be here. It was mm -hmm. wonderful. I was, I was surprised by his energy and his insight and his vision. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I guess you're here to do is to talk about this new, uh, I guess, f uh, not, not just organization, but a kind of, like you were saying, a field of discourse called umatics. That right? is correct. And uh, let's just start off by, by telling the audience a bit about that myself. Just pretend that I haven't been, uh, I haven't done any homework before this, uh, this conversation. Okay, <laughs> Yeah, well, that would be easy to present, pretend, wouldn't it? Um, so, ummatics, the word, is it is it sort of how it sounds? It's from mm -hmm. the ummah, um, to think about the ummah. Um, the high fluten uh, definition is that it's a conceptual space in which the ummah can be imagined, can be talked about, can be a category of analysis, mm. um, and the space in which we think about the problems of the Ummah and uh, the, a vision for the Ummah in the same way that when you think of politics, we think of a polis, we think of a territory mm. and a nation state. So that's really where it comes from. Um, Ummatics is to the Ummah what politics is to polis or to a, uh, a secular sort of territory. Mm. Um, and I... I coined this term, or rather adopted this term, because I felt that politics wasn't enough. 
because when we talk about the ummah, the, there is a um, the concerns are slightly wider, although they overlap, mm. and their valence, their tempo, their um, authority, right, where it comes from, where we are going. Uh, is different and normally Muslims sometimes when they think of politics they think it's something that's dirty uh, it's something that is secular mm. um, something that you shouldn't talk about it in the masjid or in the khutbah um, yeah. and uh, there's a good reason for that politics tends to be negotiation and give and take and compromise now umatics is to remind Muslims that look we have to think about more than ourselves, more than our communities, and more than our you know, particular interests. Mm-hmm. We have to think about a community by the very virtue of our faith, by the fact that we belong to a community of the two testimonies, La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. And whoever mm-hmm. says La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah becomes my problem, becomes my strength, becomes my concern. Um, this is something that no Muslim disputes. Yeah. But where do we go from there? Uh, can we thought, think about this in a scholarly fashion, in a sustained fashion? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not to say that all other categories ought to be eliminated, right, or replaced, that we still need other social sciences, we mm-hmm. still need uh, politics, we still need concerns, at least those are involved in politics, local politics, global concerns, so on. Mm-hmm. But umatics should be as it sounds, right? If you read the Quran, you find ummah there, you find umatics there. Really, umatics is just a way to say, hey, this is a problem, a space the Quran creates for the believer that we need to pay more attention to. Mm. And so from that, that idea... Uh, came out a an organization, the Umatics Institute. Would you, would you call it like a think tank or a research institute, or how would you? Yeah, you could say it's a think tank. Although think tanks typically advise governments, government mm-hmm. policy, you could say that uh, this is a think tank that advises the Ummah, and as such, its mm-hmm. address uh, is not to a a modern secular institution. Um, and its its goals, um, but rather it is the ummah at large, um, and uh, in we also you know we believe we have found mm-hmm. I found in my work and my research over the last twenty plus years, but also uh, really over and over wherever we go and talk about this, we find this really interesting. Um, phenomenon that the ummah is already ummatic, that Muslims mm. already think as an ummah. So our work is not really to persuade Muslims that, hey, you should think as an ummah, but rather, hey, now that you think already as an ummah, but do we you know, often act virtu- in, a, in a way that is virtuous, that is consistent, that is ethical, that is... Um, mm-hmm. That that is consistent with this, with these beliefs you have, yeah. right? So you, in that's what where where we often find that this, the scholarly work is interesting because we often find 
we believe certain things, like we should help Muslims in Syria, Muslims, the Uyghur, we should help the Rohingya, we should help the flood victims in Pakistan, um, that the infighting between Muslims on the basis of territorial boundaries is wrong, that, mm-hmm. that the colonizers came and divided us up into 50-plus states, left us bleeding, left us divided, control our elites, um, you know. So that's all wrong, but why don't we do more about it? Mm. I want to explore a bit more, you know, the, 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 the ideas and, and uh, the field of omatics, but... Um, just, just, just to rewind a bit. So you 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 founded this organization recently. It's a spin-off of uh, Yaqeen Institute in the U.S., which you're already, um, I think, you know, maybe a founding member of, or certainly, you know, central to. You're the editor in chief in chief of. Yaqeen I'm Institute. not a founding member, but yes, I'm editor in chief at this point. Yes, that is correct. And before that, your 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 research interest because I just remember. I mean, I followed your writings for a while. I remember one thing I was really impressed with was you, mashallah, you you translated Madaraj al-Salikin uh, into the English language, and uh, I haven't read it because it's like a hundred pounds. Maybe I can get a PDF or something off you. But, <laughs> but well, uh, that depends on how this interview goes, <laughs> right? But. Uh, uh, how did you, uh, you know, end up at this moment? You know, what was your what was your trajectory? Um, uh, but uh, as an academic, as a Muslim, as a student of knowledge, you know, what, how, what 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 led you to come to this point? Right. Um, so it's a great question. I, in fact, I remember I, I was born in Pakistan, grew up in in Karachi, in a, in a relatively poor neighborhood of Karachi, mm-hmm. and then moved to Saudi Arabia, where I spent. I did my High school, finished my high school there, which I don't know what that is here, but uh, 7th through 12th grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then came to the United States. I've lived longer in the United States than anywhere else. Um, I don't work rem- out your age now. Right, try to work <laughs> out. That's, that's the assignment. Um, and I don't remember not thinking about the Umayyad ever. Um, as I came of age in a poor, struggling neighborhood, seeing a lot of, you know, pain, misery, but also beautiful things around me, mm. and then seeing different Muslim countries, Pakistan, Saudi, um, and Saudi was a beautiful experience, but also a painful one, you know, that people are treated differently there. Um, people have, uh, and this was before the current uh, situation, which um, which War, really, what's the that? The Gulf War. Right, so around the Gulf Wars okay. there. That was actually one of the most formative moments for me, just mm. the fear and helplessness that one felt. And I was in Jeddah, far away from, from the action, but nonetheless, it mm. was uh, really, really formative for me. The pain, almost the fear, the terror. I had nightmares. And the nightmares were strange. The nightmares were, you know, the recurrent, um, the fear that, you see, you'll see American bombers destroy our compound. Mm. The funny thing is that at that time point in, in, in Saudi Arabia, the, the U.S. was the defender. Yeah. But that was the, um, the odd feeling that when we had, um, that it wasn't clear whether we were being defended by the wolf. Yeah. And, um, but at the same time, you know, 
uh, I had great admiration for scholarship or academics for 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 what a wonderful world the United States university was and so after I graduated I went to the United States and and studied my you know studied physics in fact really oh. right so. nuclear physics was my was interest advanced physics modern physics quantum physics that was my thing until um, until really you could say it you was realized you couldn't build a build a nuclear bomb just by doing that you needed a <laughs> yes people say that yeah. but you know for me i i you know my inspiration were pakistani i mean it sounds silly but pakistani nobel prize winners right like mm-hmm. uh, uh, um like abdul salam yeah. um theoretical physics was my interest mm-hmm. but also abdul qadir khan who did build a nuclear yeah, reactor yeah. right i mean that's nuclear why my father actually Ahimullah, pushed me to do science as well Ah, right. Um, so he always, always used to say, you know, you know, study and you'll make something to defend the ummah. Right. <laughs> now, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you know. Camera, quite exactly what, but... I mean, so yeah. you see, you could say that building a nuclear bomb is rather easy. Building a nuclear reactor is much harder. Yeah. Right? And more, more productive. Right, slightly more productive. But that's but 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 that's the difficulty, right? To be able to sustain mm. energy, and to, to 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 some degree, that was always what I thought. Right? That's why I was always drawn to the academy, to research, to asking deeper questions. And I think to my training in physics um, allowed me to do that. It it sort of made me think about, you know, physicists like to talk in a certain way, which is pompous, you know, pretentious, yeah. but which is like the fundamental uh, dynamics of nature, like, mm-hmm. you know, fundamental particles. I mean, these guys are chemists and biologists <laughs> and engineers. What do they know? Yeah, what do they know? I mean, they're just, you know, uh, spin-offs. So um, I think physics do, does this. Like, so whenever I... I do anything, I'm like, okay, what is the fundamental governing mm. principles? I need to figure those out. Um, but uh, in college, I was more and more interested in the issues of the Muslim world. I met a number of uh, Muslims from all over the world. That was one of the most wonderful things in college, mm-hmm. University of Wisconsin-Madison, where you had expats, um, PhD students mostly, uh, who were more mature, you know, than than somebody who just goes yeah. after undergraduate, who are coming from different places, brilliant people, from Tunisia, Egypt, Turkey, um, Pakistan, and so on. They so ra- that's they radicalized you. Was that they radicalized you? They actually were mostly. I mean, many of them were leading scientists, um, scholars, physicists. But they would sit and talk and dispute, you know, they would be like all-nighters talking about mm-hmm. the problems of the ummah. There were all kinds of people from all different sides. Um, and, and so that was where I think that this ummatic concern I had mm-hmm. became more and more clear. Like, you know, that there is, I can't forget where I come from. And I can't forget that it's a very something very, that's my center of gravity to think about the Muslims. To think, think about the suffering that I saw in my own eyes. Mm. Think about the helplessness that I saw. And for a lot of people, it's theoretical. For a lot of people, it's, uh, it's far away, not for mm. me. Um, yeah, and after that, I was much more interested increasingly in social sciences. And, and so I did a master in social science and then um, came back to work on Islamic intellectual history. Mm-hmm. History of Islamic political thought. 
Excellent. So that was your. Um, when when did you make this the kind of so physics undergraduate and then social sciences masters and then right. I, I did other things as well, but but basically that was mm-hmm. the the, mm-hmm. the main transition. Okay. And um, yeah, and I was working on Islamic studies and uh, you know, yeah. before and after and so on. But my question was, you could say in the first book or the dissertation that I wrote, can we look at Islamic history and critique it from within? Right. Mm-hmm. So one of the big challenges we had, particularly after nine eleven, but even before, was Bernard Lewis. What went wrong? Yeah. Right. So talking down to Muslims about what you guys got wrong, uh, you could just you're just angry, um, and you haven't accepted defeat. So accept defeat, um, and you'll be okay. Islam was great once. Right. So that was something that uh, Bernard Lewis had uh, uh, the grace to say. Uh, repeatedly, uh, yeah, Islam was not a theocracy. It was great once, it was the best civilization, but it's over, long time ago, it's finished. So the question was, okay, what went wrong? Can and, and, and yes, maybe, right, so there is Orientalism. Orientalism had, in fact, quite a bit of purchase in the Muslim world, the Muslim mind, much more than we, th- we, we, we like to think. Yeah. Uh, in fact, people at, uh, at Al-Azhar, for example, were reading history, which is a translation of Bernard Lewis's uh, History of the Middle East. Mm. <laughs> uh, so that's how people think about themselves, right? Um, mm. Not through, like, it, it's difficult to make your work, make your way through Ibn Khaldun al-Tabari or whatnot. Um, so yeah. this is how the image, the image of where we came to be. So my question was, can we say, well, we can critique ourselves, thank you very much. And so that's uh, where I became interested in work of Ibn Taymiyyah. Okay. But really, Ibn Taymiyyah came later. To me, first it was early scholars, um, Al-Mawardi, Ibn Hanbal, Ghazali, Joaini, people who wrote about wonderfully about politics. But when they wrote about politics, another thing, interesting thing was they didn't really talk about the nation-state. And they, they didn't talk about elections. They didn't talk about democracy. So one thing that often people ask is that, well, why not? These people just didn't know what politics was about. And that's where the discovery that is captured in the word ummatics. They really thought about ummah. They weren't talking about the nation state. The mm. nation state or territory was important, but it was secondary. So you could say that the modern nation state is flipped over in sense. So modern nation state, uh, you know, after Westphalia, 1648 and whatnot, it starts after rejecting sort of Christianity and, and, and the Holy Roman Empire. Modern nation state starts with territory as a given, and then it tries to take different people with different beliefs, um, and it tries to mold them into a community, right, through propaganda, through education, whatnot. Mm. So you start with the territory, and you force a community. And then you sort of create beliefs that are necessary for the nation state to survive. The ummah starts in a different way. The ummah starts with an idea of what is truth. Mm. And that truth and, and the sense of the good, the good in the sense of where we're going, the goal as well as the good as in what is good to do, um, those become central ideas. Yeah. Like moral virtue, therefore, is central to Islam being Islam. And the community is built around that. Right? Professor Wael Halak, for example, has done a wonderful mm. job in recent work showing that Islam, the idea of morality, the idea of virtue, is so central to Islam in a way that you really can't separate it from Islam in a way that 
Whereas in the West, it's, um, you know, political thought is rather, you know, it's might is right, it is, it is you know, violence. But through violence, you silence other voices. And then you ask on your new private, private life, you know, what is virtuous now yeah. that we have the materials figured out? So in Islam, you start with a community mm-hmm. and then territory is secondary. Not that you don't think about territory. And, and that's why when you think, when you look at a work on Islamic politics, you first start with, well, God, right? The prophet, revelation, the truth. And then, well, the community of people who come together to mm-hmm. believe in this truth in the, in the two testimonies. La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. And then you say, well, how to best organize these people in a way such that they can live mm-hmm. most fruitfully, most truthfully with uh, with this, so what, what kinds of terms are you here translating as politics um, from the from the classical kind of scholars? In terms of, so I mean, you you have some things like ahkam you sultani know, and these types of things, but these seem to be a bit more localized, I guess, about you know public order and and mm. you have you know works about siyasa. Right. What 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 do you call politics when you look back into the because obviously the, the 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 subtext is there is a khilafah there's a there's a particular world right. kind of order system of, 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 of arranging um you know peoples there's, there's there's generally kind of a decentralized just life you know it's not not there's no you know all encompassing control of 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 a of a of a place of, of millions of people like we do today Mm. You know, it's people just going about their daily lives, and they happen to, you know, pay pay homage to, or pay their taxes to a particular person or family or whatever. I mean, I guess there's so much, so much that was different back then. Mm-hmm. I'm interested right. what you call politics, what you draw from. So, the idea of khilafah is really right, obviously central to Islam, Islamic imagination. The word khilafah or imama are really synonyms. The word imama and the word ummah come from the same root. Mm-hmm. Imama, imam is a leader of the ummah, and the imam could be a, a in fact, an idea. Uh, the Quran is an imam for the mm-hmm. ummah, ultimately, right? It's the the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is an imam, and the Khalifa is somebody who steps in the place of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam without being a prophet, without being infallible, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the great. Um, if you will, philosophical problem for Islamic politics, which is the Prophet ﷺ creates this community and then he's not there forever to guide it, to shepherd it. Mm. In fact, that's the first crisis in the mind of Umar ibn Khattab, عن, right? When the Prophet ﷺ passes away, he doesn't know how that could happen because the Prophet ﷺ, you know, is the guide, he's the, gar- he's the guardian. Um, and then Abu Bakr reminds him, عن, that this was the deal uh, the prophet, prophet's death was, in a sense, pointed out, prophesied in the Quran uh, years or, earlier. So at that moment, um, the mission of the Ummah becomes clear, which is now we have to live on after the Prophet ﷺ, which the Prophet also said, this is the greatest tragedy that will ever mm-hmm. befall this Ummah. And mm-hmm. we don't often appreciate that, right? but, but that's a great break when Umm Ayman, Radiallahu anha once said right after the passing of the Prophet, he used to visit, the Prophet used to visit Umm Ayman uh, frequently. So after he passed away, the next most senior members, Abu Bakr and Umar, 
try to do all the things that he used to do and to ensure the community goes on. So they also went to visit her. Mm-hmm. And when they went to visit her, she started crying. And, 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 and to make her feel better, they said, well, don't you know, he's in Jannah, he's with God, he's happy. And she said, well, that's not why I'm crying. I'm crying about us. I'm crying because a door of revelation has closed, right, mm-hmm. from heaven to never open again. And that's really a moment which, where the ummah, uh, ummah's the sense of politics is born. Right? So this is theoretically a very important moment because this means that the ummah is now going to continue without divine, direct divine guidance. Mm-hmm. And the Prophet uh, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq in his first, very first speech says, I've been chosen of you, I'm not the best of you. If I'm wrong, correct me. If I'm right, follow me. This idea that... Um, the ruler of the ummah is not infallible, not prophet, not, not being guided. That means mm-hmm. there is really no theocracy in Islam. You could say that you're going to be given uh, or led by uh, God's norms, God's law. Some scholars will say that Islam is a nomocracy rather than a theocracy because you, you, you're bound to a law. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now what, are the, what is the specific form that results from this? Now, people often say that Islam did not give any particular form to politics, right? Institutions, whatnot, are all completely up to us. We can take anything, secular nation, state, democracy, liberalism, is just as good, mm-hmm. right? Wrong. That's not the case, right? It is true that um, some institutions are flexible, mm-hmm. but there were some other institutions that were central, right? And ummah is an institution. Ummah is a community, and certain certain practices of the ummah, mm. prayer, for example. So, if you you'll find in a book on a book on on khilafa, that one of the major responsibilities of the imam or the khalifa is to lead hajj, to lead hajj, uh. to, <coughs> to establish mm. prayers. In fact, juma prayers until mm. throughout Islamic history, until 1924, uh, a khatib anywhere in the world will say the name of the sultan uh, and khalifa. And pray for them. That was that's part of worship. Um, or when is Eid, right? That sort of thing. Those are things that could be delegated, but that's the right ultimately. Uh, qadis. Is that not a a pragmatic requirement for having a, a a large body of people that are united? That you you can't you can't um, credibly petition every or speak to every single person about their interests so mm-hmm. you have to have some kind of you know representative of all of them right to and represent all of their interests on a you know um, internally as, as well as between nations and between peoples and Right, so it's a pragmatic requirement for sure but mm-hmm. in fact what you point to was an interesting debate among scholars and uh, the sunnis um, particularly the ashari's believed um, which is the predominant view, uh, both Ash'aris and Ath- many of the Atharis believe that uh, Khilafah is not a pragmatic obligation. Mm. It is a religious obligation. Meaning that even if Dr. Salman Bhatt couldn't tell me why you need a Khilafah, even if at Harvard and, and Oxford and Cambridge everybody got together and said, well, this is a silly idea, it makes no sense whatsoever, the theological belief is that that doesn't matter. It is not anyway. a pragmatic obligation. Do you mean Khalifa or Khilafa? Either one. Either, so you, there, it's just a different form, yeah. right, of saying. 
Whereas the Mu'tazila believed mm-hmm. that it is a rational obligation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can look at, you know, um, reasons, the kind that you pointed out, yeah. that why you need a Khalifa. Now, the ulama of Sunnah al-Ghazali, al-Jawaini, Ibn Taymiyyah, others, um, do point out the rational case for why we need mm-hmm. one. But they don't say that that's the basis of the obligation. Yeah, that's a subtle point, but it's important for the Sunnis. In fact, Maul Ghazali was so insistent on this that he said uh, in, that if a Khalifa were to disappear, mm-hmm. uh, if the Khilafa were to disappear, there would be no legitimate Muslim life left. Our uqud, our contracts, mm-hmm. which are uh, on the basis their basis is the legitimacy of the Qadi who contracted them, and the Qadis are appointed by the Khalifa that the whole of this life is going to become invalid. Um, and that's a particularly strong way of saying that, that all of Islamic yeah. life depended on... I mean, I remember um, I was speaking to Dr. Abdul Wahid from Hizbut Tahirid a few years ago. I think it was the 100th centen- Hijri centennial of the fall of the Ottoman Khilafah. And right. he, he was saying, you know, at the time, when one of the debates was, you can't, you can't just get rid of a Khalifa. Even the, the people who were... The secularists, or who you know, the people who were anti-Khalifa, they were like, "We can't abolish it in totality, because Muslims will rise up because their their Friday prayers won't be valid." <laughs> you know, because right. it was so central to them as a, from an um, from a from an ibadah perspective, even. Right. You know that, but what I'm trying to um, get at is, back then it was. What I'm trying to understand myself rather is back then it was it was just a, a reality of life that there is a. There is a, a what we what we call a khilafa, the, right. the the frontiers of the Muslim ummah, some somehow encapsulate something inside them that that you know is one political kind of entity. It might have different subdivisions and stuff, but there is what what is that thing that binds them all together? Because you could say, yep, there's la ilaha illallah, there's the shahadatain and so, on. but I mean there was. I don't know if it was a majority. At some point, I heard that there was a major- majority of its inhabitants were non-Muslims. Mm-hmm. You know, for so it's not just that. What is it that that binds the ummah or in a, a khilafa or imam or whatever you whatever one wants to call it? What is that thing that you're looking at in in history? So this is the thing that binds this this society together because it's not just the the beliefs of the Muslims, right? Because Right. Is it that those are the ones that are in charge, and you know, the 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 rule of law and and so forth is happens to be the Sharia, or something close, to, or something what what is mandated by the Sharia. Right. So you're asking me, or you're telling yeah, me? Yeah, I'm asking you. What okay. is the? Because I've heard that I mean historically in the time of the four Imams and so forth that. This was quite shocking to me as well. Um, that you know, during their time, it's, it, Muslims weren't a majority in those in in, in what we call the the khilaf or the or the ummah. So, it's what binds all these people together as as one political entity, one khilafa. Um. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. It is khilafa itself. It's a concept. Mm. That Muslims have an authority, a mission that starts with the Prophet and has continued that community, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's what uh, unites, if you will. And even when political power is not uh, concentrated in Baghdad, 
um, which happens in around the starting 4th century of, of Hijra or 10th mm-hmm. century of Kamenira, is you could say that it's kind of like British British royalty, right? British British king now, um, in in the era of Commonwealth, if you will, right? Yeah. Some decades ago, that people all uh, still uh, referred to um, and and drew their authority from mm. from belonging to uh, to the caliphate. So, in fact, all of these rulers all over the Muslim world, all of the lands of Islam, Darul Islam, as it was called, um, would seek a letter or a document of investiture from the Khalifa that I can rule now in your name. Because yeah. the central problem was, where does the legitimacy of governance, where does the legitimacy of political existence come from? Mm-hmm. And this was a real problem because now you have a dispute of whether you know this rebel who has risen up, do mm-hmm. I have the right to rule or does he have the right to rule? And well, if I have the document of investiture, I have the right to rule. So it's a it's a real problem. And similarly, why should people, why should the Qadis be appointed by this person? Why should people obey? Um, yeah. Now, as you pointed out earlier, the, uh, actually Islamic life is driven or, or, or governed primarily by Sharia, by, which is a very bottom-up kind of grassroots law that applies to people, but it also is articulated by local authorities, communal authorities, the ulama. Mm-hmm. And it's different in different places, or there is a like there is a there is a variety. But there is, th- in other words, you could say in many ways, Islamic society is self-governing, mm-hmm. but it's conceptually brought together by the idea of a khilafa, which of course sees some very difficult times. Uh, the Mongol onslaught, mm-hmm. um, the 13th century, uh, when the eastern half of the Islamic world is chopped off. And so there is an interregnum interruption for a while. And then a Khalifa is reestablished in Cairo, but that Khalifa has much less authority, much less power, much less sway than the Baghdadi Khalifa. Nevertheless, if you will, the formal uh, recognition can go on. Um, but... Uh, Starting from that time, the ulama begin to, in fact, uh, contemplate uh, mm. something more. And, and that's something very interesting that I discover in my work in history, is that particularly Ibn Taymiyyah shifts the focus of Islam from the Khilafah to the Ummah. Interesting. So he doesn't deny, he in fact is very clear that the Khalifa, Khilafah is an obligation. Not only that, but in fact he says kingship, royalty, is haram in Islam. That's not Islam. It may have been permitted in earlier uh, religions, but not so in ours. Mm-hmm. Except, of course, if people are you know, oppressed and they have no other way or they need somebody to protect them, but Khilafah is the norm. However, in much of the writings of, of Ibn Taymiyyah, he is concerned with the Ummah. Yeah. How to empower the ummah? How to rebuild the authority? Um, because in the, his time, you know, people used to say uh, that the khilafa is has become worthless. It was it was it was clear. Um, but at the same time, everybody recognized that that's the symbolic continuity. So khilafa, even at that time, yeah. uh, was a symbol for those two continuities, continuity in time and continuity in space. 
in time mm-hmm. to the Prophet Sallallahu and space all Muslims brought together. Yeah. And that then is reinvigorated when the Ottomans, a uh, couple of centuries later, uh, bring power and this uh, claim to caliphate together with one important exception, which is that they are not from Quraysh. Mm-hmm. So they sort of wrestle with this. Ottoman theorists and ulama fuqaha wrestle with this issue, how can you have a khalifa who's not from Quraysh? Because the Sunni theory was, Sunni tradition was, the khalifa has to be from Quraysh. Mm-hmm. Is that a uh, um, condition for validity or just for like um, a recommendation? Uh, so that's a very interesting question, very interesting problem for Muslims because you know, if you look at any, any ruling on any issue in Islam, like whether you should have a beard or not, the, the schools disagree. Even though the Prophet ﷺ says, grow your beard, leave it, um, was it a recommendation or was it a command? And if it's a command, then to mm-hmm. how, wh- wh- when does it end? Do you, should you never touch it, right? Mm-hmm. Or should it, it just means that it should look like beard. All of these things are disagreed on. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the, when the Prophet ﷺ says something, the ulama, scholars, and this is rudimentary, usul al-fiqh, mm-hmm. like we have to still figure out what does he mean? Now, on this question, the Prophet ﷺ has very little. He said, min Quraysh. The Imams are from Quraysh. He said, are. He didn't say they must be from Quraysh. Mm-hmm. He said, they are from Quraysh. So, and then he. So, it could be like from the perspective of um, what is, not necessarily what ought to be. Well, exactly. So, and then, uh, you know, he said that people are not going to follow anyone except Quraysh. And then when Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, when he's making a case after the passing of the Prophet mm-hmm. he makes a pragmatic argument of why they should be from Quraysh. Because people are not going to follow anyone. The Arabs are very mm-hmm. conscious of status and, and, and tribal honor. Mm-hmm. And the only tribe that they're going to follow is from Quraysh. Mm-hmm. Had, for example, Ansar become uh, Khalifas, People from Banu Hanifa say that we are much more honorable, much long. You know, people mm-hmm. from Yemen would say, "Well, we had kings, we had this whole ancient tradition, mm-hmm. and you, the Ansaris, who were seen as sort of, you know, the, the lowly in 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 that tribal pecking order, how do you get to rule?" So, in other words, this is the insight of Ibn mm-hmm. Khaldun. Ibn Khaldun says this was a sociological, if you will, uh, observation the Prophet Sallallahu was making. It was an advice, mm-hmm. but it was not a command. So anyway. Um, so people could uh, dis- disagree with that. And, and again, if we were talking with Sulul Fiqh, I would say that, look, the command about beard is much clearer, and yet you have disagreement. And here, the command is not clear at all to begin with. And therefore, the ulama could then yeah. make that, uh, and, and the Ottomans could benefit from this kind of ambiguity. Uh, anyways, long story short, Ottomans once again uh, mm-hmm. bring together power, and the caliphate for mm-hmm. several centuries until, um, you know, until the 19th century. Yeah. So, so um, we're moving. We're, we're talking about your 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 interests, your your history. Your um, I had forgotten that, yeah, but yeah. yes, wonderful. So, so that that's your your um, you know your interest in early Islamic thought, and then you know, Ibn Taymiyyah comes at an important time for you because that's when the the idea of the Khilafah is perhaps weakening the Mongol invasion, the, the, the breaking up of Muslim lands and so forth. Right. Um, 
post event so did you say you noticed post ibn Taymiyyah more of a, a discourse concerning ummah rather than khilafah you said that's well yes we could see that there is a uh, particularly in ibn Taymiyyah's own thought yeah. uh, and that's the case i make in my uh, 2012 book um politics law and community and islamic thought the Taymiyyah moment that's why it's called the mm-hmm. Taymiyyah moment people sometimes read the Taymiyyah movement Uh, no, it's Semian moment. The idea is a moment, the fulcrum around which certain yeah. concepts change. And uh, now I can't say that the Ummah becomes important after Ibn Taymiyyah universally, but rather it's in the thought of Ibn Taymiyyah and a few mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. But what done, does be- begin to happen is that the word, you know, the word siyasa, sharia, Islamic politics becomes much more common. But you could say that you don't see um, a recovery of the ummah quite as much as you could have, you would have, right? So until until uh, the modern period. Yeah. So um, this is really interesting, uh, kind of um, hearing about this. Um, so for for you personally, you're now looking at the the Ummatics Institute now. Um, You, as we just mentioned, you're 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 a founding member of Yaqeen. Yaqeen Institute. I'm not. You're one of the founding members, or no? Oh, I'm editor in chief. Editor in chief, right? And a founding member of uh, obviously uh, Umatics Institute. That is correct. So Yaqeen Institute it deals with more the would you say the intellectual side of things and the the the, the iman of people, the the Yaqeen in Islam and dispelling doubts and doing research into that. That's correct. So that's the the kind of Um, from the from the Aqidi kind of perspective, uh, I suppose, what what caused you to make that link from Yaqeen into you said okay we need something to and something different something else something more to revive this what was your was your engagement with Yaqeen um, and putting it another way was your engagement with Yaqeen a, a stepping stone for you to continue this 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 umatics. Ah, a great question. And uh, no, the answer is no. In fact, Yaqeen was just very gracious and uh, gracious, and bold. Um, um, and at that time, I wasn't part of Yaqeen to to publish something that I've been thinking about. Mm-hmm. But no, I've been thinking about this for over 20 years yeah. since since now. You can try start calculating my <laughs> age again. Um, You're 35. 35. No, wow, thank you. I'm, I am. Um, yeah. Uh, more like 25. <laughs> I was five when I started thinking yeah. about it. No, uh, but if you minus uh, the nights, <laughs> right? So now, if uh, I've been thinking about, you know, so my book is published 2012, but really, uh, it, it, it's really 2000s or even late 90s. Um, but um, so what happened is that in, I guess, another milestone that I should talk about is is the Arab Spring 2011 ah, okay. very important uh, moment when people came out uh, asked for accountability uh, spreads the idea spreads like wildfire people are of course um, really really oppressed by the neoliberal neoliberal policies mm-hmm. by crony capitalism um, And there is hope that there will be change in the Muslim world, that this series of failed and failing miserable states and elites 
looking out only for themselves and increasing number of people living effectively in open air prisons, mm -hmm. that this is going to change, doesn't change, right? And it's a big heartbreak uh, for me and a number of scholars, uh, friends, sc academics. And at this point, I'm just an academic. I'm, that's all I do. I, I do history. I do, you know, mm -hmm. history of the Sawuf and history of of political thought and, and so on and that's what my world that's my world that was in after so after the arab spring happened uh, i was in uh, in the summer of 2011 in cairo interviewing people trying to understand what is their vision what's happening what mm -hmm. what they're looking what are, what where is it going to come from asking uh, leaders or you know offer this leaderless uh, um, revolution, I say revolution with mm -hmm. air quotes because it wasn't right. It was um, so, but that was a heartbreak. And after that, I began to think, what next? Is there? Mm. I mean, we're living in a nightmare. Nine Eleven, the global war on terror, uh, war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, Muslims being killed left and right, um, and only people looking for hope. And that hope has been turn into an uh, into this nightmarish ghoulish thing daesh which and daesh has claimed mm -hmm. the most mm -hmm. important uh, symbol of islamic existence throughout history the khilafa mm -hmm. so it seems like it's all just all downhill from here right and and so that's where i begin to think that um, i can't just be um, live in the library and think about these questions in my head in the ivory yeah. tower so um, 2017, 18, I'm thinking about this, writing about this. Uh, and um, Yakin, someone from Yakin approaches me and says, well, why don't you write an article about Khilafah? I said, no way. That's not safe for you guys. You guys are doing a wonderful work. I love it, but I don't want to end it. <laughs> um, they say, no, it's going to be okay. Do it. So ultimately, I agree in 2019 and, and, and finish the article. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that sort of is what leads to a movement um, of yeah, you know, yeah, scholars, intellectuals, Institute. people from all over the world, in fact, start approaching me and said, well, this, is, this is what we need. Excellent. So, so the Omatics Institute came out from that, that article, from the, the, um, your interactions with Yaqeen, what is the vision for the, the institute, the Omatics Institute? The vision is to get Muslim heads and hearts together, uh, and, and non-Muslims. Right? It's one of the most interesting things about um, Omatics is that one of the first conversations after my article came out was my Christian friends, who were scholars, um, you know, top, top Christian scholars, in some in Europe, um, elsewhere, who said, this is very interesting, we want to talk about this, and so we had this private kind of meeting mm -hmm. and seminar about this. Um, and ever since, I have engaged with Christians as well as others. Um, so you want this. to bring hearts and minds together yeah. in order to do what? What do you want to see? Well, the idea is unification of Muslims, mm. uh, Muslim civilization at all different levels. Um, so... Uni and we say both the word unity and unification because we know that unity is not homogeneity and unification is a process. Yeah. So cultural, political, social, yeah. economic levels. With this requires preparation 
Um, this requires scholarship. This requires yeah. so one way in which we are different from a number of Muslim groups that um, that talk about the kil- the caliphate is that well our focus is on the preparing the ummah. Um, and a simple way to say this is that uh, you know uh, Malik bin Nabi, a great Algerian uh, thinker once said that the Ummah became colonizable before it was colonized. So we want the Ummah to become Ummatic so that it's ready then for a kind of good good unified governance. Mm. That it will demand accountable rulers. It will demand um, to be unified. Mm. And and then the, the leaders who will not give it that will be left by the wayside. So we think that that's the way to go. Excellent, mashallah. Um, one, there's a there's a um, a Muslim think tank in the UK that started recently. I don't know if you've interacted them, with them much. Ayan Institute. Yes, yes, yeah. very much. So we they, are in touch. They've um, one of their reports. They it was about the you know steps toward the revival of the Muslim uh, of Muslim civilization. And one of their points that they've pushed as well is reunification. And they gave some examples of how that can be done. Practically, um, you know, politically, economically, trade, and that, and that kind of stuff. Um, so that's very interesting. And so, in terms of, you know, when when we asked this question, we had every every I think it's become a thing now. Every year for for the last two three years, we've we've been doing like at Islam Trinity some um, webinars with um, Sheikh Mohammed Hassan Al Dido, right in Mauritania. Uh, it's been a very nice. Um, a, a kind of opportunity to ask questions, and, and because obviously you know he, who he is, he's he has he has I guess an omatic you know outlook. He's he's one of those uh, people who are thinking o- about the broad issues of the ummah, and probably ask you know gets questions from many different countries and types of people. We somebody asked him okay about you know a, a re-establishment of the Khilafah and his answer was something that. Now, now that I think about it, it's so obvious, but it was something that was quite new to me mm. as in terms of an idea. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason that is, is because it was, uh, it kind of sh- uh, shook me up a bit in, in terms of my, previously my, my, my conceptions of the Khilafah and so forth. And that's probably because the my interactions with this word Khilafah or Khalifa or movements and so forth were kind of growing up were just to kind of establish a state right with all the modern kind of trappings of a state and right. say okay this state here this is a khilafa um and, and many different groups they have you know obviously they have a normal a noble aim you right. know, but the the aim is nonetheless to to go and find a place somewhere mm-hmm. okay this is a this is a khilafa now this is a continuation right um and obviously i mean obviously the 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 kind of the crazy version of that is obviously Daesh and stuff that like, you know here's a, here's a space now okay Iraq Syria and that kind of stuff but the, what Sheikh um, Adido's answer was it was it was more about going backwards rather than d- completing a loop so th- so he said the Prophet Sallallahu said okay there's going to be some rightly guided caliphs and there's going to be you know nice king obviously I'm paraphrasing there's going to be some nice kings and there's going to be some not so nice kings and you know he was and 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 when growing up whenever i heard of and uh, people talking about khilafah and movements to kind of 
um, revive the Khilafah. They were kind of going back to the beginning and say, let's find a place, do what the Prophet did, right. find a, right. a country somewhere, and then, you know, <laughs> either preach Islam there to the masses and then, you know, they'll right. become, choose someone good and they'll be the Khalifa or military coup or whatever. Right. But what Sheikh Ahmad Hassan was saying was, we're at this point now where you have these, these kind of separate entities fighting each other, competing with one another, they're not ruled you know in a in a in an islamic way in a in a transparent and a just way he his answer was more like we have to kind of go backwards in terms of making them more just making these you know um making them into the the the, the good kings and then kind of rewinding so that once these are these these entities these countries these different countries are you know Transparent, they, they, there's justice. There's people. People are finding their their bread. You know, they 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 are they're not failing states. They are they are, you know, um, thriving. Then 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 you know you can talk about bringing them together and then yes. kind of um, I understand that way. But the thing that was it sounds obvious now, like a, a kind of thing. But the thing that was different to me was I was thinking of Khilafah as a kind of country or a state or whatever, rather than the Muslims that exist today being swept into one big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah so that's, a, that's a great point. Um, now, so the, the vision that you described, there are a couple of things that come out of it. One is where I have, of course, great love and respect for uh, Sheikh Dadu, one of my, um, mm-hmm. you know, idols, one could say. <laughs> In a halal way. <laughs> In a halal way, halal <laughs> idol. But at the same time, I don't quite think... Th- so this idea of gradualism, right? That mm-hmm. uh, one needs to do this, this, and that, and um, and gradually at least something. If that's what he meant, uh, that's not what I'm saying, right? Mm-hmm. But if he meant what is that you have to start with the ummah and the resources of the ummah, um, and that it's not just that you start a khilaf in the backyard of your parents' house or in the garage. That's, mm-hmm. you know... Rather... It is that, and, and that hadith also, by the way, is that's uh, endlessly repeated by people who talk about mm-hmm. Khilafah. I have a slightly, modestly, hum- humbly different interpretation. The Prophet I'm just talking about what's going to happen for that, yeah. you know, that, that century and a half, and exactly how it happened. Mm-hmm. But the Prophet didn't say anything about that, and, and therefore we're free to interpret what he meant. Mm-hmm. So then this cycle could be repeated multiple times. When you look at Islamic history, you know, yeah. you, you, you thought in the 14th, 15th centuries that Islam is over and then the Ottomans came and something completely yeah. new came out. So I don't think that, uh, personally, I don't... It could be a sociological observation, you're saying. Well... <laughs> like, even, like the rise and fall of, I guess, nations and right, societies. Right, and right, 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 yeah. absolutely. So the Prophet ﷺ, what he said, in fact, did come true, right? So mm-hmm. there were the Umayyads, uh, or Safwanids, and then the Marwani Umayyads, and then the Abbasids, and then, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so on. It may have been ref- referenced to that. But um, what we have a command. So there are certain things the Prophet ﷺ talks about the Day of Judgment, certain things that are going to happen, but we don't know when that's com- happening, mm-hmm. right? So when the Mongol, uh, Mongol attack happened, uh, everybody thought this is the end, yeah. right? Yeah. People were writing books on signs of the Day of Judgment, everything's mm. come true. But those signs were fairly generic. Mm-hmm. And so, and some of them came true, some didn't, and people sort of fudged it a little bit. 
But basically, those signs are not there for us to, uh, as our agenda of what we ought to do. What we ought to do is there in the Quran and the Sunnah. That's the fundamental. Mm-hmm. Right? So the Prophet Sallallahu says mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, near the end time, Bedouins, camel herders are going to compete in building tall buildings. <laughs> Some people really think that they should start doing that, maybe to, 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 uh, to rush the Day of Judgment. <laughs> they, they've got it wrong. Uh, that was a joke. <laughs> I don't think they're doing it do that. But nevertheless, <laughs> right. So, but, but my point is that those, this sense of time that Prophet speaks of in, you know, yeah. we don't know when it's going to be one, two, ten, 10,000 years yeah, from course. now, yeah. but our obligation is moral obligation mm-hmm. is commitment to what Allah has told yeah. us and what we find the good that we ought to do in the world. And uh, that's why, uh, and, and so the second thing I'll say about this, this idea of gradualism is that you have to start with the end in mind. If you accept the constraints of the nation state, mm-hmm. it will eat you up. You will become secular. Yeah. You will be fighting with each other about who is more patriotic in Egypt or in Pakistan or elsewhere. Mm. Uh, we've seen this happen over and over. right? So... Um, that's not, in my view, the right way of understanding gradualism. Mm -hmm. But it is correct that I think we need, first and foremost, yes, we need, um, you know, education, we need to prepare people, we need intellectuals. The war that we need to wage is on learned helplessness. Like, Muslims have learned, taught Mm -hmm. themselves, convinced themselves that we cannot do it, that we, you know, people can go to moon, colonize Mars, People can, you know, build most wonderful things, but we cannot do the most rudimentary thing. Um, so that's, I think, what we need to undo. Mm. But once you undo that, I think that this um, regional unification, which is very much a uh, both a, a realistic idea, um, you know, economically feasible, yeah. politically, a much better idea. Um, and given our technology, given our modern um, accessibility yeah. uh, and the kind of government and modern um, institutional design that's accessible to us, yeah. that's, it, it'll be easy. It, it's, it's not, you know, it's not easy, but it's, it's quite feasible. It's quite doable. It's yeah. the learned helplessness that we taught ourselves that we cannot do it. That, you, you know, people can build rockets to go to you know mars and 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 overcome death or whatever but we cannot build a simple car and you know that's not borrowed from somewhere so that's uh, i think that's our real challenge yeah. i did want to talk about what the challenges are in your opinion um for for umatics as an institute umatics as an idea as a as a field of of study as as, as a as a a route to rebuild and reunify the Muslim world. So you said one of them is learned helplessness. Right. What are the other challenges that you see before us in terms of... Kind of I think all the other... I mean, so we are working in various areas, if you will, various departments. We're thinking about... Um, in society, we have differences, right? We have sectarian differences that are often seen as... Um, and, and as is insurmountable, mm. um, we have ethnic differences. We have national boundaries. Um, 
people are seeing, you know, economic uh, poverty, impoverishment. Muslims are at the mm-hmm. absolute bottom of human development, of institutional development. All of these are seen as great problems. But really, at the end of the day, once you overcome learned helplessness, almost mm-hmm. self-deprecation, self-hatred of sorts, um, everything else is going to be an mm-hmm. interesting challenge, right? It's kind of just, a re- it's going to be the kind of resistance. You go to the gym, you need some resistance to build your muscles. Yeah. The first challenge you have is that you need to believe that, yeah, you can go and go to the gym mm-hmm. uh, and you can do what this next guy has done. So I think that that ultimately is the challenge. Yeah. Everything else is detail. Yeah. You know, I was, I was just Googling uh, before I, w- I was coming in the population of this borough that we're in right now, the Muslim population hmm. of just, just one borough in London, uh, Tower Hamlets, is something like 130,000 Muslims. And, I mean, if you probably add the illegal immigrants or whatever, <laughs> you're probably going to maybe, maybe double it, I don't know. But I was just thinking, if the Prophet Sallallahu in in uh, and, and shortly after, yeah, the the Khilafah that he set up that was left behind the the, the rightly guided caliphs, they, the population of the entire Ummah then, was probably less than the, the population of London's Muslims, maybe a few million, uh, you know, in terms of the Arabian Peninsula or certainly Medina. Right? Mm-hmm. If you say the last sermon, one hundred fifty or thousand attendees, maybe maybe that's half of the. I don't know. You can. But surely, the, so if you look, if you if we just think about that one thing now, the Muslims are one point something billion. Surely, just in terms of logistics, how can something? Someone might ask, can something that worked then for such a small number of people comparatively be used and be fit for purpose in today's day and age? Of course. Because what is the thing that we're talking about? Mm. We're not talking about the fact that they used perhaps horses to travel. We're talking about the idea that mm. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about let there be an, an Amir from among you. Let there be, uh, let this be your order now so so that's right that's doable mm-hmm. um we're not using horses anymore um so institutional development is necessary right institutional development and there's something i do a history of that in my work um that you didn't really get proper uh, full government until abdul malik ibn marwan until really uh, 50 years after Khilafah Rashida. In other mm-hmm. words, it was work in progress. Right. So, what, what did that look like? That was, was uh, I heard that was kind of borrowed from the Byzantine bureaucracy or administration that was taken over or something. Right. Um, yes and no. In fact, what's interesting is that um, bureaucracy is. Uh, Diwan, if you will, is accepted from in the time of Umar ibn Khattab from Persia. Mm-hmm. And oddly, it is in the time of Abdul Malik ibn Marwan that it's Arabized and Islamicized. 
that coinage and documents and bureaucracy mm. that becomes Islamic later, mm. only when there is capacity to build that. So institutions take time to build. Yeah. Um, and in the time of the Khulafa Rashidun, the Islamic state, and I don't use that word, is really a conquest elite. Uh, it's a conquest elite. What does that mean? Meaning it's conquering... Right, the generals, military leaders who are conquering the world now. Um, now, how that starts actually is not m too much of their own choice, uh, although they want to make dawah. But at the same time, as soon as dawah starts, already in the time of the Prophet sallam, both the Persians and the uh, Roman empires have become alert because of his letters, which he sent a couple of years before he died, alayhi yeah. So both are already activated, both great empires, against mm. the Arabs. And so uh, the Rashidun have to respond to that. Um, and so that's what they become, right? Mm. And as they're incorporating newer areas, um, the success is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but by any kind of means, nobody would have predicted that an empire would, would, would spread so fast. So institutions are being, you know, of, of such large-scale governance are are being adopted and quickly developing but they are different different places depending on when they were conquered and how they were yeah. conquered and what treaty was made <clears throat> and they are bec they are being regularized um and a state if you will emerges uh, i mean you know uh, only only in a few decades mm -hmm. so i is that the thing that you think we need to revive now? When you when you talk about caliphate, you're not talking necessarily just about something that the Banu Umayyah came along with, right? You're talking about the original mandate of the Prophet right. Exactly. The original mandate and all of these things are contingent, meaning that they were historical responses to what was happening. So it could be completely different, uh, reimagined in a completely different way to how Banu Umayyah um, established something. It could be in... Because, I mean, this is, this is a statement about, this is why we were, we're, as Muslims, our mandate, you know, about enduring the good, forbidding the evil. You know, we're supposed, we have this notion of, this philosophy of steward, stewardship of the earth, right? That we have to look after this place. We have to raise the, glorify Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what we want to do over here. Um, and and to me personally, I think one of the challenges I see is that view being replaced with something else. That our purpose here is to, you know, avoid pain and uh, pain and and you know seek pleasure as mm -hmm. as creatures. You know, so this competing ideas of mm -hmm. the purpose of man vis-a-vis -vis man, right. man vis-a-vis -vis nature, right? right. Um, uh, so are you taking it back to the most fundamental, like you said, as a physicist background, what's the, the fundamental operating kind of law here? That is, you, you, O human being, are here as a representative or a, or a steward of Allah on earth. And then you're building everything on top of that. Like as well, yes, if you will, that is central, but that's not sufficiently determinative, right? Mm. You, you, you throw, there is the rest of the Qur'an, and the Sunnah yeah. that give shape to this. So, in other words, you establish prayers. You have, if you will, some certain uh, prohibition of certain kinds of behavior in, e in economics, trade, commerce. Um, 
uh, and establishment of certain kind of behaviors in society, family, community. Um, you put them together and then certain specific recommendations yeah. about how to govern, what to do, which are uh, subject to time and place as they were. So yes, mm -hmm. those things do have a shape, but the shape is, uh, has evolved historically. So for example, in my article in 2019, in, uh, at, in, you know, Who Wants to Caliphate?, um, I enumerate four different forms in which the caliphate uh, existed. Mm -hmm. And if you consider the last one, which is when the Ottoman Empire, uh, Ottoman Empire was becoming a caliphate that was a constitutionally confined caliphate, that was a fifth form. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that was, that's a wonderful uh, history of 1,400 years to draw on. Um, and also, you know, I... I, as a historian, I'm a big believer in that there is no such thing as future that's not derived from some version of the past, right? When Marx, the most futuristic, the most uh, iconoclastic thinker of modernity, ultra-modern, wanted to think about the future, distant future, only uh, really in terms of the early pre-agrarian past. Mm -hmm. That's what's gonna. That's when the world's going to be like when there will be no... Uh, capitalists and everybody will just be sitting and fishing and so on. Um, that our future, we we must be one hundred percent futuristic, but the future imagination has mm -hmm. is only rich, is only valuable because we have a good sense of our history. But often people do Bernard Lewis history, you know, um, which is. You guys are finished, and we have, unfortunately, young Muslim scholars running around saying the same thing mm. um, and calling themselves Islamic historians. Oh, we are realistic. You know, this can never happen. This is ridiculous. You just taught yourself this is impossible. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you was maybe you've, you've seen, you've probably come across um, a, a sentiment amongst Muslims, some Muslim scholars, that Muslims shouldn't be going out looking for power yeah what would you say to to that kind of that idea that seeking power if you have power then fair enough you're going to be questioned about that but should muslims go forward and seek to be powerful influential have have a you know be accountable for more and more so i have two two quick responses to that i know that you're getting tired of my my, my <laughs> repetitions but two quick responses first is they would have to disagree with the Prophet ﷺ on quite a lot and the Qur'an. So we'll set that aside. Second, I mean, sociologically speaking, is there any human being who doesn't want power? Meaning, what is power? My ability to influence things around me and influence people around me, right? So mm -hmm. insofar as these scholars are trying to perhaps... Uh, scholars or intellectuals or leader or whatever, whoever they are, insofar as they're trying to ensure their the stability of, of their positions, that's power. They want power. They're seeking mm -hmm. power. But the way they're doing is that they're aligning themselves to the most horrendously unethical forms of power that have existed in Islamic history, and they're calling themselves, oh, we're not, we are apolitical. So this call, this idea that, oh, we are apolitical, is always somebody pulling your leg, somebody cheating you. Mm. It is possible, of course, for one to say, look, we cannot do anything. We are just helpless. And that and goes back to your learned yeah. hopelessness. 
or, or the hope, you know, helplessness could be that, you know what, there are only 30 Muslims left in the world, everybody is in prison, uh, we cannot go out without being shot at, uh, let us just pray that God will send something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be with them if that happens. We have 1.9 million Muslims. We have opportunities to speak, think, to help people, help Muslims as well as non-Muslims around the world. Non-Muslims around the world are yearning for, uh, for meaning in life yeah. and, and the beauty that Allah has given us. Muslims around the world suffering, being cut down, being imprisoned, being incarcerated, uh, thought policing everywhere in the Muslim mm-hmm. world by these puppets of uh, world governments. And we have something, an alternative vision that our, yeah. our deen has given us. So to say that we should be apolitical, if you are imprisoned after you've done your job, or if you are otherwise incapacitated, yes, that's what you should do. But if you have any kind of capacity, um, then uh, how could you stand before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how will you answer for Palestine or Kashmir or the Uyghur? How would you answer that you were teaching books about what Sharia is, but you did nothing to ever um, even hope that this is a real thing? So, let's say, look, we want Muslims want power, or we want Sharia to be in places of where where decisions are made and and and, and influence and and power and so forth. Uh, the the what what pleases Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. One of the things that I sometimes worry about is if we if we um, try to do that and get that in those domains which in the last few decades or a century or so were the domains of power and the levers of you know the the, the, the decisions that are being made around the world. Um, if we end up getting power there, but in the meantime, the the real power has shifted somewhere else. We might be kind of going after a, a, a dying horse. Right. Do you know okay. what I mean? The, the the reason why I think this sometimes is today, for example, you know, Google and Apple and Facebook, Meta, they probably have more money and and power than lots of lots of states what is the what is the place of tech the place of big business multinational corporations in your view in 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 the in the landscape of things that muslims should be trying to um influence or have a say in no, you're absolutely right. In fact, one of the areas where we are very invested in researching is what we call future studies. Um, and those are really exactly the kinds of questions we should be asking. So it's not the concern should not be to take over power somewhere by simply making a really big chair and sitting on top of it and saying, you know, I'm in charge. Mm-hmm. The, the concern should precisely be to understand um, where real power is and how to ensure that it can be ethically exercised in the future in future right exactly where it is where it's going and there are forms of power that are perhaps inherently questionable like so if um you know one megalomaniac guy uh should not have the kind of power that often uh, that modern late 
late capitalism gives certain people. Mm. Um, so critique of that kind of power is in fact part of what we ought to be doing. Critiquing it, or maybe could someone ask, wait, why don't we, why don't we have more or, or campaign to get more Muslim billionaires or mega billionaires or whatever? Because that's where, just from perspective of what is, that's where there's power influence. Um, abolish billionaires. <laughs> but no, so I can get into my personal view yeah. of uh, to what kind of inequality is tolerable. Mm. At which point, now I'm speaking not from a Sharia perspective, but rather a Sharia as well as sociologically informed, historically informed perspective. Mm. At certain point, inequality is uh, inequality becomes so unbearable that you really develop two different races. No, they're no longer the same people, right? So billionaires and poor people in the world don't think the same way, don't have the same problems. They even don't feel the world in the same way. They don't, even, they don't have the same minds, almost like they, they, wouldn't, have nothing, they wouldn't have anything uh, shared. And at that point, you can't really think about the same humanity. So that's mm-hmm. why in Islam you have mm-hmm. the distribution of wealth is one of the concerns, which is not to say that private property is not important or that you should go for some kind of uh, mm-hmm. godless a Marxism or socialism or whatnot. But nevertheless, um, much of this wealth is built on the backs of millions of slaves. Of course. Right? Mm-hmm. You don't build pyramids without cracking a f- you know, a few million eggs. That's what's happened. So do I want to simply join this bandwagon? I think that would be unethical, mm-hmm. but not to say that I don't want to look out in the future and see where it's going. Yeah. And what, what role does tech play, do you think? In, in, or is that, is that uh, you know, is the jury still out on that one? On that one in well, terms of the future of um, the ummah and, and nomadics? Yeah, I, mean, I think the jury never really comes back this is, uh, as the world is changing. Right? What we're trying to create is a discourse, groups of scholars, and, uh, intellectuals who will continuously study. So this isn't, the idea isn't that we'll find where things are going, freeze them and say, well, this is where we're going, but rather that Ummah should be constantly involved in um, mechanisms of self-governance, unification, harmony, mm. and ethical, sort of ethical world-making. Mm. I mean, I, I'm, I'm conscious of the time. Um, it's usually a good sign if, if uh, we lose track of the time. But I did have two maybe brief questions. The, the, the questions might be brief, but the answers may not be. But uh, just I really wanted to get your idea about so all, all the stuff we talk, talked about um, in terms of omatics as a, as, a, as a discourse, as a movement, as an institute for yourself. Where do you think... Um, what do you think the role of Muslims living as minorities is in this grand you know, vision of things, and in particular Muslims in Western um, lands? I think we have to play a central role willy-nilly. We, we are the ones who have the authority and resources. When I say authority, unfortunately or fortunately, this is what, what's been given us. You know, you have Western Muslim celebrities, uh, wonderful people, Mm-hmm. But they are heard everywhere in the world. Muslim kids are growing up, listening to them, right, emulating them. Uh, whereas they may have great scholars in mm-hmm. their own neighborhood that they don't even know the names of. So that's that's one. Speaking English, 
particularly English, of course, other languages in well, in well, but uh, as well, but particularly English has this power. Um, so that's a reality. Uh, also freedom. I mean, uh, one of the ways in which Islam's great potential uh, is recognized and then um, crushed by these predators in the Muslim world is precisely to make life so miserable that they will not think. They almost live a subhuman life. And therefore, for us to do something about it uh, is just all that, uh, all the more urgent and important. Mm -hmm. So your call to Western Muslims is... Use the biomatic, biomatic. Use the freedoms that you have. Use the freedoms you have. Yes. Mm-hmm. Don't. I mean, so there is a. I mean, there are a lot of things that go with that call. Don't be reactionary. Right. Don't be romantic. Be realistic. Biomatic means be realistic. Be thankful for where you are. Right. Be be good, courteous, and good citizens to wherever you are. It doesn't mean that you know you have to go out yell in public squares like how you guys are just uh, you know dirty colonialists who have destroyed the world, which that may be true. There's place time and place for that. But um, one of the things I think that is interesting when you think start thinking automatically is that you you can accept your status in a sense as a guest. You know, you may be permanent, but also you may accept that look, your center of gravity is somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that may be okay, you know, um, that we're not trying to, uh, you know, bring Sharia in the UK unless the vast majority of, uh, of, of British people become Muslim and then demand Sharia, then wonderful. And that's, um, that opens up possibilities of, of, of dialogue that, you know, mm-hmm. there is no... There's no subversive project. It's, it's very much, look, we will tell you about Islam. And it will be wonderful if you became Muslim. It, your life will be all the better for that. And your afterlife will be infinitely better. But uh, even if you lived in a Muslim country, you will have the freedom to not be Muslim. Mm-hmm. And do you think the nation state as we know it is, is on its way out? Yes, I think nation-state already has transformed quite a bit, right? In almost a couple of decades, uh, after every, every couple of decades, it changes. And so the idea of nation-state as a thing is just an idea in the books. You know, the 1648 Westphalia mm-hmm. nation-state, the prince's absolutist state, mm-hmm. is very, very different from the 19th, early 20th century empires. There's no such thing as citizenship for vast majority of people. Mm-hmm. And, and then... Um, in the age of Cold War, every nation-state is um, a, a piece on the chessboard for the two world powers. Yeah. Um, and, and now in the age of globalization, once again, nation-state is changing. And nation-state elites are mostly just um, uh, mercenaries for co- global corporations and enforcers. Mm. So the nation-state isn't the same thing. And it's changing. And yeah, it, it will change. Okay. Zach um khair for uh, your time as well uh, for Zanawayakum. joining us thank you barakallahukum and jazakumullah khairan to you at home for watching if you like this podcast give a like and a share we'll put all the uh, links in the description below of the of the um the articles uh, dr awaimir was uh, talking about and a link to where you can get your book and i'll let you know if he gave me a pdf for free later on as well i won't share it anyway <laughs> but uh, 
uh, get involved in the comments below if you uh, you found anything interesting. Um, agree, disagree. Uh, remember to subscribe and hit the bell notification to get notified for future releases. And just a reminder, anywhere you get podcasts, you'll find the unscripted podcast as well. And that's it from myself and Islam Trinity Seed team. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank <laughs> you.